and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Today, I'm really happy to welcome back Dr. Dennis Patrick Slattery onto the program. Dennis and I recently talked about his book, Day to Day Dante, Exploring Myth Through the Divine Comedy. That program can be found on the Myth and the Mojave website if you want to listen to it or revisit that conversation. Dennis has been teaching literature and mythology for over 40 years and is core faculty at the Mythological Studies Program at Pacifica Graduate Institute. He's a prolific writer, and he is also a passionate, and that really is the word, reader. And today we're going to delve a little bit more deeply into the value of reading and consider how the act of reading itself opens us up to deeper explorations. So, Dennis, I remember when I was in your classes that you talked a lot about reading and reading as meditation and and reflection. How should we start this conversation? Well, we, we could speak about what the act of reading as, a, as an act of contemplation does for the imagination to open us to realms that are, by and large, with our full, busy, day-to-day world, pretty much uh, buried beneath the floorboards of uh, where we live. Mm-hmm. In describing your interests, you specifically mentioned the place of contemplation within the academic setting. Now, yes. is that particularly important, or are we talking about contemplation for anybody in any setting? It can happen in any setting. What I've never been satisfied with is the idea that we master a text, we explain it away by theory, and we don't ever have an experience that the text is waiting for us to engage. And so when we move to reading as an act of meditation, and I've even uh, uh, considered how uh, reading is an act of prayer. It's, an act of, it's, it's a way of praying. It's that sense of open, opening one up to the vulnerabilities that exist inside one and allowing the text, the poem, I'm staying with poetry because that's, uh, that's our area, but it's not limited to that, mm-hmm. that the text has its own uh, subjectivity. The text is a subject like us, not an object uh, to be exploited. Oh, this is interesting. Now, one of the things that we talk about fairly frequently on Myth in the Mojave in our exploration of mythic dimension is the self and other experience. You know, and one of the one of the challenges that I think we face and one of the things that's interesting about this type of exploration is how it expands uh, not just our awareness of other 
and that we have ideas about other that we're projecting on there, but also expands the universe of possible others. You know, I think many of us live in a world where privately we feel that we are in conversation with a lot of what's around us, although the cultural story is that you can, it's okay to talk to your cat, maybe, but, you know, not trees, not rocks, not, you know, and certainly not books. But I love the idea that, uh, that what you're reading, the text, is an other. Yes. So it seems to me, then, that when you're using the word contemplation, I tend to use the word conversation, probably because I talk too much, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, the text then is can be seen as both a mirror and a teacher. The way I think about it, it can you can see yourself more clearly in seeing your reactions to it, and and yet it, and then it also takes you places or shows you things that you didn't know. Yes. And I would extend that, uh, I, I agree with that, and I would extend it. It's occurred to me in the last couple of years that, that if we think of a text as having a consciousness, it's not a dead, inert matter. If it were, then uh, reading, let's say, Moby Dick when one is in high school, and then reading it at 25 and reading it at 38, and then reading it again at 60, very different white whales are going to breach with each reading. Now, how can that be? How can a work change that much uh, over decades of one's life? And my response is because one's personal myth is changing and growing organically, and somehow the authors of these classics accommodate the expanding consciousness of who comes to the text to read it. So a 17-year-old in high school is going, to, is going to confront one white whale. Uh, somebody in graduate school at Pacifica taking epic imagination with me at age 42 is going to have a different white whale because they're reading it through the lenses of their mythology but the other piece that has um, intrigued me is that not only does a work have consciousness, it has an unconscious. It has a personal unconscious from the culture out of which it grew, and it has a collective unconscious because of the archetypal energy fields that are tapped if one reads with a full presence, imaginatively, and is not out after mastering or turning turning the text into a slave of one's own theory or one's own ideology. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that the text has all those levels of conscious and unconsciousness, and the other area that intrigues me that I would connect with that is how different a text is when we reread it. Rereading, I think, is a more mythological activity 
than reading a text for the first time, which isn't unmythical, but some drilling down into the myth that guides the work, guides the plot, uh, guides the arc, uh, a word you used a little while ago, is, um, is where its deepest myth is residing, and I think it reveals itself in increments. We can't get it the first time through. We need to come back at it in that spiralic motion that I think the imagination is. It's a, it's a form of remembering. It's a form of coming back down and in and back out again, each time with more material to reflect on. So when reading leads to rereading, I think the experience people have with the text is immensely enriched. I mean, one of the reasons that I do Myth in the Mojave and tell stories the way that I do and also have guests like you on the program is that I think it's crucial that thoughtful individuals have a sense of all of the tools at their disposal. We all need to develop our own way and ability to think and reflect. (laughs) And there's so much emphasis on authorities and experts and in an, in an odd way, even the self-help industry sets us up to go to somebody else to figure out who we are and what we need. And, and so anything that's readily available that a person can use to develop their own capacities to think about and reflect on themselves and the culture are of interest to me. Yes. Now, give us a few directions. How do you read mythologically? I mean, one thing I heard you say is rereading. <laughs> um, yes. What other suggestions would you have for how to sit down with a book like Moby Dick or The Divine Comedy or any other a classic in particular, um, yes. this sort of approach in mind. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good question. A couple of things that I suggest to my students, and may or may not have been at that place, Catherine, when you were my student, because I'm continually evolving as a teacher. But one is, well, let, let me back up, and this will be personal. Mm-hmm. For the last 24 years, I have gotten up at 4 a.m., seven days a week. It's the way that my books are written, the poetry is written, and so forth. I, several years ago, decided, you know, when I get up uh, and get coffee and come into my study, I light a candle. Uh, Depending on how I'm feeling and what I'm going to be doing, uh, reading, or am I going to try to write something... Uh, I light a stick of incense. I get the other senses involved immediately. And then the first thing that I do is that I write one page in my journal. And what I write about is what wants to be remembered from yesterday. And I sit there quietly, and as yesterday comes up in memory, 
I write it down. I don't care if something is, if the first thing that I write happened at 6 p.m. yesterday or if it happened at 4.30 a.m. yesterday. I, I throw chronology out. All of these things that I do are prepping me for reading, which is where I go to next. I believe it's essential to read with a tablet to write on and a pen and not to have a computer on but to write cursively because cursive writing opens us in ways that typing onto a screen sidesteps. So ritualizing reading is important. I think where one reads is important. Then I suggest, as you read, watch for what calls you to underline it, to write something in the margin, or to stop reading because some memories coming up out of the reading that you hadn't thought about in 30 years or 15 years or one year. And that's the psyche attempting to engage a part of your narrative with the narrative that you're reading. And that, I believe, is an act of faith. I can't prove Mm -hmm. it. So oftentimes I've had students tell me one line in a work that they paused and started to write about became the final paper for the course. The psyche, the imagination, doesn't need much seeding to really cultivate ideas. You know, when Joe Campbell was asked, and apparently it's not apocryphal, it's true, what did he do for meditating? And he said, I underlined sentences. Now, one could say, well, that was just the Irish imp in Joe uh, showing off. But he he was authentic about it underlining those sentences that drew him to it, like a, like a piece of a shard of metal to a magnet, he knew were mythically loaded for him. Somebody else is going to underline another sentence, perhaps, maybe the same one. So it's important to realize, and I'm going to use your word, conversation. When we're, when we're drawn to pause to reflect, to underline, to write something suddenly in the, on the tablet you have close by, those I, I find to be not only mythical moments, I think they're mythopoetic moments. And by that I mean, if one takes it in, one is going to write something down that further shapes or forms their own myth by means of the analogy that the text is providing. And that analogy could be symbolic, metaphoric, catching something of somebody's history in the way that the plot is moving. All the, the permutations of that, I think, are infinite. Yeah. So, so those, are, those are a couple of things. I find it fascinating to reread the same classic, using the same copy, and watching what in the last reading pulled me to it, where there's maybe something scribbled in the margin, or I have a page number and a quote on a piece of paper, and what's drawing me to it this reading. And oftentimes, it's not the same thing. 
Well, I think that's opening another part of one's personal myth up. I think each time through a text deepens the mythology that one is living out. And putting one closer in contact with the deep myth that's guiding the text itself. And when one in reading or rereading taps the myth, drills down into the core of the myth that is shaping the plot as it unfolds, I think there's a deep meaning there that is absolutely joyful to excavate and then at least as importantly to give it language but your language not the language of the mm-hmm, text mm-hmm. so yeah so those, those are a few okay, things okay yeah well i think that's i i love that and i agree with you wholeheartedly about writing but longhand with a pen <laughs> i'm curious about people right. who are uh, significantly younger than the two of us who maybe never did very much writing with a with a pen or a pencil, just know whether or not it's the same for them. Now, one thing that I noticed that you didn't mention is any kind of research into the text itself, the history of the author, the time that it was written, uh, other people's reviews or critiques of it. Do you think that that type of thing is important to the process? Yes and no. My sense is the less baggage one brings to a text for the first time is better. I think those appendages have a value, but not at the front end. I think they can be added to the experience, but the first thing that's most crucial is that you not have crutches to support you moving through the text for the first time, Mm -hmm. or even first couple of times, because it's like meeting somebody new for the first time. Um, And let's say you know that you're going to meet that person. Well, you could do some research on him or her. I'm not critiquing that except to say there's also a way of meeting that person in a naive way and not knowing about their history and seeing how the person unfolds for you before you learn of that background. So I I believe that the text Ability, and I'm going to steal a, a term from a, a writer that has had a lot of uh, has had a strong effect on me, uh, Robert Armstrong. He his claim is that whatever we do to make the work effectively present as an experience for us follow, and if somebody feels that knowing having the uh, information about the writer, the historical period, helps that work become more affectively present, and then, of course, do it. My fear is that people don't give themselves a chance to experience the work on its terms only 
but move to uh, critical apparatus, uh, historical context uh, mm-hmm. too quickly. Right. That initial experience is aborted. It's not allowed to happen. Right. I, I also think that there are uh, works that people avoid reading because they think that they can't unless they've got some sort of background in it. Uh, A group of us read the Odyssey together here a couple of years ago, and that was very interesting. And one of the things that I heard most often was from the people who read it along with me was that they, they never would have ever done that because it would have never occurred to them that it was a story that you could just pick up, <laughs> that you didn't have to be an expert yeah. in Greek mythology or any of that to really get a lot out of the book. As So yes. um, I guess one last th- question I'm wondering about. So I, I imagine that if you were putting together a list of useful text <laughs> to read and reread that of course Dante's Divine Comedy and Melville's Moby Dick would be on that list. Are there any other yeah. works that come to mind that you would recommend to people to investigate? Yeah. Yeah, uh, somewhere in one of my collections of essays I lay out the 100 books that have influenced my life, and I wish I could point to it right now, but I can't, but I love epics, and so others that I would encourage people to read, now you you all work the Odyssey, that's wonderful, uh, I would back up to those two fabulous Sumerian epics, Inanna and Gilgamesh, that are they're so accessible, and they're, they appeared, oh gosh, the, the, the scholarship says that the Odyssey appeared around 800, 850 BCE. I think Inanna and Gilgamesh, 2500 BCE, right. quite a bit older. Um, Beowulf, uh, Virgil's Aeneid is very helpful in reading the Divine Comedy, and it's a wonderful story in and of itself. And then coming up, I would say Milton's uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, I would say I love Shakespeare's tragedies and his comedies, Uh, so for drama. But also backing up the plays of Sophocles, uh, Aeschylus, and Euripides. I love studying and used to teach, and I miss uh, teaching those. And then if we came up, um, oh, the 18th century I'm not so good with, and I haven't been attracted except for Rousseau's Confessions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if we came up into the 19th century, uh, certainly Melville, Hawthorne, uh, we to get a, a, a feel for the for the beginnings of the myth that have made America what it has been and what it continues to be. Uh, Thoreau's Walden and Emerson's um, essays, 
And when I was in uh, undergrad, I loved the Bronte sisters, uh, Jane Eyre, uh, Wuthering Heights. Uh, I'm ashamed to say that Jane Austen has never hooked me, but I've been told by students who she has hooked that they believe if I if I dipped into reading her, uh, I would be hooked. So I'm that's that's a promissory <laughs> note uh, for me, and I love all. Anything that Faulkner uh, wrote coming into the uh, 20th century and the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Um, And, you know, a good uh, anthology of world poetry is one of the best books to have on hand where you just flip it open and you read a poem. I love reading a poem or two each morning. Often it tripwires the beginnings of a poem, and so the morning time is uh, so valuable for that. But to just come onto a poet's poem, you don't know who the poet is, you don't even know if they're alive, they're dead, and all of that becomes irrelevant uh, to the poem itself. And then uh, the thing that I didn't say earlier, Catherine, that I would say now is, Let's say you're reading Moby Dick or you're reading The Odyssey and something you come on and really strikes you, slow down and read it aloud, even if it's just Mm -hmm. to yourself. Because when these works, and you know me from the classroom, I love engaging the passages from the works, not people's ideas or theories about the work, and let the collective imagination work those but by being heard, not just read uh, silently. So reading aloud energizes uh, passages of these classics, and certainly uh, the poems, uh, when read aloud, you, you, you sense other meanings just by making it oral, not silent, that I find remarkable. Yes. And then I've, I finished the epic class, as you know, and I've stayed with it, with Toni Morrison's uh, magnificent Beloved. And I'm reading her uh, God Help the Child. Toni Morrison's 85 now. She published it maybe a month ago, and she still has it. She still has that poetic power to tell a riveting uh, story. So she's uh, she's been one of my favorites uh, in uh, practically anything that she uh, writes. And and then, you know, I think just paying attention to the bestseller list, what, what, are, what, are, what are the New York Times bestsellers? Because those are indicators that something grabbed hundreds of thousands, or if not millions of people. It, it, not always the case, but that can be a really good barometer of um, what to read as well. Oh, and and the Southern fiction writer Flannery O'Connor has been my fa- one of my favorites for forty <laughs> years. So I didn't want to forget her. <laughs> Very good. Obviously, a lot available to us. Pretty much anything that captures a person's interest, you know, if read with intention and in a uh, intentional context as part of what I'm hearing you say in the ritualizing of the space. I like that idea of engaging uh, more of the senses 
Well, so I think we are definitely out of time at this point. Thank you okay. so much for joining me on the program. It's, a, it's just been an absolute joy to be part of your world, Catherine. I've enjoyed every minute of it. So I, I thank well, you great, as well. Great. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. To learn more about Dr. Slattery's work, including workshops that he offers on writing and reading and personal mythology, and to buy Day-to-Day Dante or any of his other publications, please visit his website, www.dennispslattery.com. That link will be posted along with the archive of this program on the Myth in the Mojave website. Thank you for listening. Please tune in next week. And in the meantime, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.